Welcome to the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and community. This is Ari Armstrong. Music by Jordan Smith, see jsclassical.com. Please subscribe via your podcast app, or better yet, join my email list at ariarmstrong.com. That's ariarmstrong.com. If you appreciate these, this show, please help support it at ariarmstrong.com slash donate. Our guest today is Michael Humer, philosopher at University of Colorado at Boulder. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. It's thanks good for, to be here. Thanks for being here. I'll just read the bio off the back of your latest book, Dialogues on Ethical Vegetarianism. Michael Humer is professor of philosophy at the University of Colorado Boulder. He is the author of more than 70 academic articles in ethics, metaphysics, political philosophy, and epistemology, as well as five other books, Skepticism in the Veil of Perception, Ethical Intuitionism, The Problem of Political Authority, Approaching Infinity, and Paradox Lost, with this being the latest. It just came out. Congratulations on that. Yep. Thank you. So I guess we'll just start off. Why did you feel the need to do to write this book, and what is the, your basic argument, which I think could be stated fairly briefly? Yeah, so... I mean, the reason that I wrote it was, so, I mean, first, I think that um, the, the problem that it addresses is possibly the largest problem, right? the pro- largest preventable problem, um, because just the total quantity of animals that are being killed and the total quantity of suffering that we're causing is, um, it's just like orders of magnitude larger than any other problem that we know about. Um, the reason why... I, in particular, wanted to write this book was um, I wanted a book that was more accessible than the existing literature. So there are lots of, there are lots of books and articles that make this argument. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. It's, you know, it's not like an amazing new discovery that there, <laughs> there's this problem of animal cruelty. But um, I thought by putting it in this kind of short dialogue format, I would make it so more people would want to read it and you know, be, be accessible to undergraduates and uh, non um, non-academics. Well, I, I love, I love the book and the way it's written. And I, I wish that more academics would write more material like that. That's more accessible to regular people. So I thought it was very effective at that. And it also covers things like biases, the way that we think about anything in the, in factual reality. And so it's of interest even to people who aren't specifically or extremely interested in this particular issue, because there's a lot of just good introduction to sound thinking sort of principles, whether you agree with your particular conclusions or not. So that was really interesting. And then put in this, I won't say, yeah, it's entertaining, I would say, because it's basically two people, a vegetarian and a meat eater, arguing about whether it is morally acceptable to eat meat or otherwise mm-hmm. consume animal products in today's context. Now, there's a couple of details here that are important. First is the idea that modern factory farms, so-called, are extremely cruel with respect to the animals they raise. So if you watch videos online put out by animal welfare groups or animal rights groups, you can see, and I agree, profound instances of animal cruelty on these factory farms. And that's the language most people use about it. And so the second point is, so this is you know not necessarily the case of human beings you know, 200,000 years ago or 20,000 years ago, right? Yeah. So it's a, it's a fairly contemporary problem they, you know, in the industrial era. And the other, the other point that you mentioned, you estimate or you cite the estimate of 74 billion land-based animals killed per year. That's globally, right? Right. Yeah. For human consumption. Yeah. So the idea is if we're killing 74 billion land animals, not to mention 
many times that, or at least several times that, in sea creatures. Yeah. And they're being raised in overwhelmingly, extremely cruel conditions. Then the amount of suffering, the amount, the total amount of suffering is just vast and overwhelming. Yeah. And so, when yeah, you think so there's only there's only seven and a half billion people in the world, so we're killing ten times the entire human population of the world in animals in just a single year. Um, the total number of people who've ever existed is somewhere around 110 billion. So, you know, it takes two years for us to kill more animals than the total number of human beings who have ever lived on the earth, right? And, and you know, they overwhelmingly, like over 99% or something like that, are on factory farms. So overwhelmingly, they had horrible lives before they were slaughtered. So the total amount of suffering that's going on, it's got to be more than the total amount of suffering that human, all human beings have ever endured, which it's perfectly straightforward, but I don't think most people have ever actually considered that, considered the basic facts, and I and I hadn't for most of my life. Yeah. Maybe it would be helpful just to try to convince my listeners that you're actually interested in this topic, because I think everybody listening, I assume no psychopaths are listening, actually do care about animal welfare already, at least in some respects. So everyone would be horrified to see someone torturing a dog to death brutally just for fun. No one listening is going to think that's a good idea. So I think what you're saying is that the conditions on some of these factory farms is comparable or akin to that level of suffering. And certainly, I mean, I'm convinced that at least in some cases that that's the case. Yeah. So I do have a couple of, I'm just going to put on the table my couple of broad points of pushback before we get into more specific issues. One is several times in the book you refer to meat eating. The benefits of meat eating are basically some sort of mild enjoyment or mild pleasure. So I think that it's reasonable to think that maybe there are important nutritional factors besides that. So in other words, there might be more benefits to eating meat or consuming animal products than you discuss in the book. So that's one, one general type of pushback. The other type is, it seems, I mean, I'm convinced that we ought not do business with these far, with these farms, agricultural bodies that we know or reasonably think treat their animals horribly. That I find, thinking about it, I find that increasingly persuasive. But it seems like the just as reasonable conclusion as vegetarianism is, well, we should treat the animals humanely. So in other words, I'm not sure that, it, that, it's, a, that it's right to go to the complete vegan option when we could just go to... Um, humane treatment of animals. And you talk about this in the book and you, you admit or you grant that it might be moral to, tr- to consume animal products if the animals are raised humanely, but you're sort of ambivalent about that. And I think yeah. your position is that you're not sure if it's okay, so therefore you're not going to do it. Is that basically it? Right, yeah. So, yeah, that, that's what's said in the, in the dialogues. And so, um, you know, in the, in the book, there's a plug for Certified Humane it's this animal welfare organization that um, they examine the treatment of animals on different farms, and there's a small number of um, companies that get to put this certified humane label. So if you go to Whole Foods, there are a few products that will have that label. It will say that, and that means that this organization thought that it was um, the product was made from humanely treated animals. Um, I'm going to go on a slight tangent here because we're in Colorado, and so I've actually looked at what products are available in humane in a humane certified yeah. version. Yeah. And there's a company, and what you cannot find is cow milk and cow butter. 
There's actually a company in California that produces these things, Humane Certified, yeah. but they produce it in a, quote, raw form, and it's illegal to sell raw milk in Colorado. <laughs> Therefore, you cannot buy I see. the product from the one company that I know of that makes it. So maybe there's other options that I'm not aware of, but not that I know of. Now, you can also buy cow shares, which is arguably more humane. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of products available, but there are still limitations legally and practically as to what you can actually get yeah. in the stores. So, you know, that's an opportunity for a libertarian plug, right? Um, you know, the state is uh, on the side of the largest, um, you know, the big companies, which in this case would be the, the meat and dairy industry. And they just want to protect their monopoly and they're going to try to stop uh, new products from coming in, including vegan products. So I wanted to talk about terminology because that's really important for understanding what case you're making um, and what are actually the relevant issues on the table. So number one is you use the word vegetarianism in your book title, but in common usage, that term is extremely ambiguous. So the local, there's a restaurant local to me and they're all of their vegetarian quote dishes include cheese. Yeah. I think all of them. Yeah. Well, that's not true. There's one, like you can get guacamole that doesn't have cheese in it. That's yeah. actually vegan yeah. or vegetarian. So, um, I'm, generally wanting to steer clear of this word vegetarian because it's just seems like most people use it in a very strange way. And so it's just an empirical claim that animals raised for dairy or eggs generally treated as bad, if not worse than animals treat, uh, raised for consumption of their flesh. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, about the word vegetarian, as I understand it in ordinary parlance, um, it means not eating meat and therefore it allows eating eggs and dairy. Um, so what I'm arguing for is stronger than that. I just use the word vegetarianism, I guess, because it's a more common word. People, yeah, people and, recognize it. Um, and, you know, what I'm, what I'm advocating isn't exactly veganism either, because it's okay to eat animals that don't have a brain, of which there's a small number, right? Which, so, you know, so you call, so vegan is... Most people use that to be more tight in, in terms of just eating plants. So yeah. you threw out the word austro-vegan, and yeah. austro, I think, refers to oyster. And so it's mussels, yeah. Um, yeah, so clams, and scallops. And then all, yeah. are, all, are all oysters included in that? I think that's right, yeah. Okay, all right. So, yeah, so these, uh, these are animals. Technically, they're meat, but um, they don't have brains. So it's extremely unlikely that they can, they can have any kind of suffering. And this is important. People worried about the nutritional aspects of it. This is important. Um, I looked up the nutrition data for mussels. Yeah. And three ounces or 85 grams, it's 23% fat, just the product itself. Mm. And it's 59% protein, which is over 20 grams or 40% of your daily value. And three ounces isn't really that much. And it's a, quote, complete high-quality protein according to the nutrition data. It has 340% of your vitamin B12, and it has 736 milligrams of omega-3. So people worried about the nutritional benefits of animal consumption. I mean, to me, it's very plausible that if you add some muscles and such to your diet, that it's at least as healthy as even the optimal meat-inclusive diet that you would otherwise concoct. And certainly more healthy than sort of the average meat-eating. I think the average diet generally, whether it's vegan or meat-eating, is pretty poor in America. Yeah. But you can talk about, you know, what's the optimal meat-inclusive diet, the optimal vegan diet, and then the, I, I mean, in terms of health, not, not including other factors, yeah. just in terms of 
that discussion. But then, and then which is better overall? And frankly, I don't know the answer, but people worried about nutritional um, benefits, you know, should consider this, you know, muscles, yeah. which I love. Of course, some people also have an allergy to shellfish. Yeah. So that's a problem for some people, just as some people have an allergy to nuts. Yeah. So some people will have, I think, a harder practical time than others yes, with a vegan right. diet. Yeah. Um, but for most yeah. people, I think that it's, you can make the switch nutritionally and be just fine, if not vastly, if not really vastly superior. That's right. Yeah. So, um, I mean, if you have a really literally plant-based diet, completely plant-based, then there's risks of nutritional deficiencies and, uh, vitamin B12 deficiency is common among strict vegans. Um, so do you but, take, do you buy a supplement for that? Uh, I have supplements. Uh, I don't know if they're good good for you or not. Uh, but you can get vegan supplements that will have these, um, you know, these. And I know that there's, there's algae based omega three supplements on the market. So, but you know, but I mean, from my point of view, there's, well, there's no reason not to eat these, um, brainless animals. So, uh, you know, clams have a ton of uh, vitamin B12. So, you know, have some of that, have some, have some clam chowder. Manhattan clam chowder, not New England, because you know, because of the dairy. Mm. I didn't even know there was a difference, honestly. Yeah, but I had. So, what about what about honey? Are you okay with honey? I don't know if um, most vegans are or not. I have no idea. Yeah, so technically, it's not vegan, but I I don't really worry about the rights of bees because I'm I don't think bees can suffer. Um, but some people do worry about it. <laughs> some people think the bees are being mistreated. That's interesting. I I don't see that, and and I think this is one of the barriers to more people taking animal welfare more seriously is that some vegans seem quite dogmatic. Like if it's not plant, you just can't eat it. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of reasoning behind that. Um, So I think that your approach is actually potentially much more effective in terms of persuading skeptics and people on the fence. So for whatever that's worth. I mean, I would say there, there are people with extreme positions, which sort of like, you get attention if you have an extreme position. That doesn't mean that's the majority position. Um, and I think... And I'm not aware I mean, of any surveys or anything, so I'm not exactly sure yeah. what the common views are among vegans or anything. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, to me, being worried about insect welfare is an extreme position. Now, you could say, well, but, you know, we should be cautious because there's a chance. <laughs> there's a chance that they're suffering. So, um, But there's also, like, there's a chance that anything is suffering. There's... There's a chance that your table is suffering because you're leaning on it. So, but you, you know, know, panpsychism is becoming surprisingly popular. The idea that consciousness inheres in everything yeah. in the universe. So I don't know. Yes, but there yes. are some you know peculiar what I regard as peculiar views out there. But I do want to clarify. So we're also saying no use of consumer products like leather or wool in a vegan approach. Right. And yeah. so what about pets? Because a lot of people in America have cats and dogs, and they're naturally carnivorous. So are you saying don't have pets, or are you saying you have to feed them plants? <laughs> Which is, I'm going to yeah. go out, I'm going to yeah. say that's probably miserable for them to eat only plants. So what, do you, what is the uh, idea on that? I don't know. You know, I guess I would have to do research on whether, uh, whether the pets can survive on only plants. And, and then if not, then I guess you shouldn't have the pets, right? Arguably. Now, I will point out that there is at least one humane certified animal pet food mm-hmm. store company, and they yeah. do both uh, dog and cat food. So for whatever that's worth, if you buy into so, yeah. the idea that that's okay, 
then you could have a way, an escape hatch there. But Yeah, and I should uh, say, you know, like my argument isn't, oh, it's wrong to cause suffering no matter what, right? My argument is it's wrong to cause suffering for trivial reasons. Uh, if you actually had to cause suffering to other creatures to survive, then do it. <laughs> so, like, Which would excuse pretty much all humans before the modern era. Yeah, maybe. Well, I don't know. I mean, they could have they could have been vegetarian too, but uh, but they weren't causing nearly as much suffering. Um, and they were hunters, not factory farmers. Yeah, you know, if your cat has to kill animals to survive, then it can do it. <laughs> but uh, but you don't. Okay. Oh, so you could actually argue that. A pet owner should not consume animal products, but they can let their pet, their carnivorous animal do so. You, there might yeah. be a case for that. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say, you know, look for that humane certified product. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to coin a new term here. I know it won't get any traction, but I'm going to say vegan plus is your, have a vegan diet plus muscles and such. Plus, this, is, this could be a big deal in the future, lab-grown meat. So you have no ethical problem with lab-grown meat. Right. Yeah, I'm waiting for them to to make that commercially viable. Right, and it does exist, but it costs I don't know, like a thousand dollars for a hamburger or something. So it's not it's a, commercially. It's a yeah. So I don't know if it's. I don't know if I, I just don't know if it's possible to drop the price down to where it's comparable or lower than meat products. But if so, this is yeah. probably a done deal because yeah, if you so, get the exact same thing that's grown in a lab that's cheaper. Yeah, so uh, there's just, no reason at that point. Just speculating, in principle, it should be possible to make it cheaper. So I don't know about the industry. I'm just making stuff up because I'm a philosopher, okay? But the energy input in the traditional method of making meat is, you know, much larger than necessary because, you know, you have to, like, grow all of the other organs. And uh, in principle, the energy input into lab-grown meat is much less. You're only making the part that you need, so. Yeah, that, yeah. that makes sense to me. I mean, I don't see any... Not being an expert, I don't see any technical, you know, technical reason why that shouldn't be possible. And then I'm going to create a fourth category here, which is called animal-inclusive humane diet. Which, of course, vegans will say it's not humane because you're still using animals. But I'm going to, but I'm going to say, look, you can, if you're going to argue that humane certified and the equivalent is okay or at least better, that is a different, you know, that's a change to your diet um, into particular. That's not vegan, but it's also not traditional meat eating in, in the current context. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that'll just give people a better idea of what you're actually advocating and what, what you're actually asking people to change. Yeah. Um, you know, by the way, like when the lab-grown meat becomes commercially viable, I bet you that some people are still going to refuse to eat it because yeah. they're going to say it's weird and it's not real meat. I think that's true. But I, my guess is after a decade or two, that's just going to... Com- just slowly drop off because as more and more people do it, it'll seem normal. And then there will be these residual worries you know, about hurting animals. So it'll just be, and if it's cheaper, that's me. If it's cheaper, like there's no contest. You ought you do the cheaper thing if it's equivalent otherwise, right? Yeah. I'm kind of a bargain hunter that way. You would so. think that, but you know, there are some people who are going to say, no, I'm willing to pay more to get the real thing. Right. <laughs> um, but you know, the economics of it is what I suspect would happen is, what we now call factory farming would drop off almost entirely, and it would be more specialty meats that are actually on small, what you think of as the traditional American small farm, yeah. where there's actually people, individual people engaged with individual animals who presumably have a whole lot more concern for those animals. So arguably, even on that score, the stuff, it would be a lot better. Yeah. Um, so here is, now I'm going to throw some arguments or some 
push some pushback points on you. And so the first one, I don't, I don't agree with this point, but I think a lot of people actually believe it. So I want to just get your response, even though I, I understand it's a kind of a broad issue. So I think some people think this. There's no actual reason to think that the suffering is wrong, which is sort of the founding premise of your argument. And what's really going on is people, we empathize with animals, presumably as an extension of our empathy or sympathy with other human beings. And people just feel bad that animals are suffering. And so they're confusing these bad feelings of animal suffering with actually a moral case. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if the person putting forward this argument is an egoist, um, but, you know, like this, this is very similar to what um, an egoist or a psychopath would say about other people, right? Like there's no actual reason to think that it's wrong to hurt people. It's just that, you know, these other non-psychopaths sometimes feel empathy with other human beings and it makes them feel bad when they see other human beings suffering. Well, well actually, that's kind of the basis of ethics, like being able to empathize with others. Well, I think, you know, at some point they're going to have to make, for that to seem plausible at all, they're going to have to make a distinction between, it's like it's legitimate to sympathize and empathize with people and to worry about their pain in a way that it's not legitimate to care about animal pain. Yeah. And so and, I yeah, guess at then, that point you just say that's kind of arbitrary. Yeah, and so, yeah, so we have to, okay, we have to know why, why is that the case? And then we just like go through the suggestions that people make. Like, oh, maybe it's because people are smart and the animals are dumb. So, okay, so pain is only bad if you're smart. Is that right? So like if there's a mentally retarded person and you torture them, then it's not bad because they're not smart. And, you know, just like on the face of it, that's completely arbitrary. Like, okay, your intelligence is one thing and your suffering is another. Like, how does your intelligence suddenly make pain bad or like being stupid would make it not bad anymore? And just to pitch the book, for skeptics, I sincerely doubt that anyone can come up with a, an objection to your position that you do not already cover and address in the book, at least in brief. And there's also really nice marginal notes that summarizes the point at hand. And so, and there's also a very good index that tells you what the particular, what the argument is at hand. And so it's really easy to flip through the book. It's really easy to read for one thing. It's like a hundred pages. That's easy, relatively easy to read, even though some of it's denser than some of it is really thought provoking. So you might have to slow down a little bit, but it's also easy to flip through, I think, and find particular objections and particular discussions that might be more poignant to your way of thinking. Yeah, that was, that was my intention. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think succeed. I mean, Beyond the topic, I just, like I said, I just wish that more academics would take that approach in terms of popularizing their work, you know, write the more formal stuff elsewhere, which five people are going to read, and then write it something that actually is, you know, normal people can pick up and read and enjoy, actually, and uh, get something out of. With with also, you know, there's, there's end notes, and there's also an appendix in the end with additional sources. So there's actually tips for academics and budding academics who want to dig deeper into it. But, at, you know, at the first level, anyone can pick it up and read it if you have, you know, a basic ability to read and, you know, awareness of your, the world around you. So, argument two. What do you think of claims that we should take a marginal approach? Instead of saying, okay, you got to become vegan tomorrow. Get on it. Yeah. Say, so there's actually a movement called the Reducitarian Movement. Yeah. And the idea is, look, if you just if everybody would reduce their animal consumption by like say 80%, whatever, that would automatically reduce animal suffering by that amount at least. Yeah. 
Um, and that w- and it seems like that would be a lot easier for a lot of people. And there's also the argument like, well, maybe you should eat beef instead of chickens because, you know, it'll take you a long time, like maybe a year to eat a whole cow. But you could eat a chicken every couple of days. So if you can reduce just the animal suffering by eating one cow yeah. instead of X number of chickens, like yeah. that would automatically reduce suffering. So, yeah. And then, so. I, but let me, th- so it's just a couple of examples, right? So, this, and I think about this because I, I have a four-year-old. It's, it's hard when you're on the road in today's context and you just want to pull off the road and get a quick bite to eat. There just aren't a lot of good vegan options out there. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so. Social gatherings, you go to your friend's house, right? Yeah. And they're not vegan. Yeah. It's, it's just awkward, right? It's like... You need to you get eat, better friends, Ari. You can eat nothing <laughs> or you can bring your own stuff, you know, but it's like... And now you're going to say this doesn't matter, right? But you have to say, oh my God, I'm a, I'm a vegan... Um, do you have any other option, right? It's just socially awkward when you talk about that. And then, and so like, I have a four-year-old, right? So if we go to a birthday party and every other kid is eating ice cream, like, then I have to pitch my four-year-old on the idea that, hey, we don't eat ice cream. What do you think about that? (laughs) So, so anyway, all this is under the rubric of, you know, what do you think of making marginal changes as opposed to going, I was going to say whole hog, but that's the wrong word. Yeah. So, um, like there are some changes that you could make that are principled that would at least reduce um, suffering by a lot, that, like that there's a reason why it might be ethical. Like you could say, well, I'm only buying the humane certified products, right? Um, and that would presumably greatly reduce animal suffering. Um, another thing you could say is, uh, you know, I'm only going to get um, only going to get meat from animals that were uh, wild caught. Okay, so because, you know, no, none of the factory farming. And, okay, so that might be okay. Um, I heard before the suggestion that you should just, like, cut out chickens because the overwhelming majority of animals that are being killed are chickens. Uh, you just cut out the chickens and you're going to, like, reduce by 90% the number of animals that have to be killed. Um, I thought about that, but also I realized that um, as a kind of utilitarian uh, suffering calculation point, uh, it's not that clear because the cows have to be raised for a longer time. Mm. Like, so they're, they're brought up for a longer period of time until they're ready to be slaughtered than the chickens. And after you take that into account, there's not that much difference in this. So like, if you assume that the time that they're alive is time of suffering, there's not that much difference in the amount of suffering. Okay. So, Yeah, I see. So I see that there's an empirical issue there, but so let's say you know if there's a what if, right? Let's say the cow, you know, let's say it does reduce suffering by a hundredfold or whatever. I mean, you're going to say better, but not still not good. Is that or how how do you phrase yeah. that? What is, I mean, so I don't know. I kind of comment on like what is ethical, and if there's somebody who's unwilling to be ethical, but they don't. <laughs> Like, they don't want to be as bad, I guess. Okay, you don't want to be as bad as you are, then reduce, (laughs) you know. But, I mean, it's a a little bit weird to say how much, you know, like how much badness you should have. Well, you should have none. (laughs) Or like, what if there's this mass murderer, right, and he kills like 100 people every year, and, you know, he's unwilling to give it up entirely. So you could try say, hey, just kill one person a year. 
And so it's true that that's a lot better. It's a lot, or less, a lot less bad anyway, yeah. But it does feel weird to say, so that's what you should do. <laughs> Kill the one person a year. Okay. And some to some people's ears, that's going to sound, you know, that's where it starts sounding odd. <laughs> yeah. um, and you talk about these sort of intuitions that people have in the book. Um, but I will just say, I mean, one of, my, one of the things I've thought about is if I lived in the era of slavery, in where slavery was legal, um, what would I have done? Would I have just, you know, gone with the flow? Or would I, because now it's so obvious slavery is wrong. All right, you're, you're yeah. nuts if you don't think that and bad. Yeah. But back then, it was very common yeah. to say, oh yeah, sla- not only that slavery is okay, but slavery is necessary. This is actually beneficial for them and maybe worse off. There's all kinds of arguments like that. Yeah. But I do worry about what I would have done, yeah. especially if you're born, you know, you're born into a slaveholding ha- household, you inherit slaves, right? So you kind of, some people just kind of got them, found themselves as slaveholders without ever really consciously reflecting about it too much. Yeah, and then what do you do? So do you take comfort in the fact that you, you know, maybe you only whip their slaves when they really deserve it yeah. or... You maybe you you're you you're, you're humane slaver, so you don't whip them at all, right? You just yeah. sternly lecture them whenever they get out of line or whatever. Yeah. And that kind of stuff is creepy to think about. Um, yeah, because you know we want to say today, look, there's no humane slavery, right? That's <laughs> it's just out across the board. And if you're talking about that, there's something strange. You know, you're not really getting it. Yeah. And I think that you want to say. There's, yeah. a com- there's some kind of similar or comparable point with respect to animal cruelty. Yeah, no, that's right. So, I mean, if, when you imagine living back in the slavery era, uh, you probably would have endorsed it because most people did. So I think most Not people, me, but yeah. most people. Yeah. I mean, you know, most people endorse whatever the practices are in their society at the time. And then, you know, some centuries later, people look back and go, wow, how could people have ever accepted that? Um, and, uh, and so... And if you ask people at the time, they probably would have had um, their intuitions um, might have lined up with whatever the current practices were. And then these extreme abolitionist people who were saying, wow, this is the worst injustice of our time, you know, like this slaveholder, he's comparable to some terrible criminal. Um, people would have laughed at that guy, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's true. Today, or worse, right? Yeah. Laughed or ostracized or even... Yeah. Beat up in the you know behind the bar or whatever. Yeah, like you know the people who were trying to help the slave escape, like oh they were subject to being arrested and putting put in prison. Um, and I will just point out, you talk to for listeners, you talk a lot about these tendencies for people to go with the flow, even in very horrible situations. Not only in the vegetarianism book, but in your one of your previous books, the problem of political authority. You have a yeah. big long chapter about how people often end up doing the wrong thing depending on the environment around them. Yeah. And so, look, that by itself is not proof that your case on vegetarianism is correct, but I think that it should give people enough pause to at least think seriously about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like, the the point should be, well, your initial intuitive reaction that, oh, this can't be the worst thing in the world, um, that might not be reliable. Right. So you have to think harder about it, like, can I give a reason why um, this enormous amount of suffering isn't really bad? Like, if you think suffering is bad in general, is there any reason why this 
particular suffering isn't bad? And what's the best explanation for why you don't feel bad about it? Like, it really seems like the best explanation is your society has been doing it for a long time. Yeah, I mean, that seems very compelling to me. Nevertheless, I'm going to push on. So yeah. this, I'm gonna, this is an objection very similar to the last one. And it's the idea that, and in fact, there are animal welfare groups that actively push industry, animal agricultural companies to improve their practices. And so take like somebody like Temple Grandin, who works up the street from us at uh, University of Northern Colorado. No, Colorado State University, excuse me. And uh, Temple Grandin, there's a great film about her on HBO. Um, and she, in addition to overcoming her autism to becoming a scientist, she developed more humane cattle practices. Arguably, she has done more to reduce animal suffering than anyone else in the United States living, more so than any other animal welfare activist. And yet, she's still basically an advocate of consuming, you know, she's in the beef industry, essentially, or, or at least talking to the beef industry. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know what her actual dietary practices are. Well, from, and maybe they've changed, but my understanding is she says something like, you know, this... It's like an ancient contract between humans and animals. We raise them, but we take care of them, protect them from predators in turn. I think it's something along the lines of that based on when last I listened to something she had to say. So I don't know where she is now. Um, but so in my book, right, it's hard. I want to think of her as, in addition to her other achievements, um, being a heroic character. And yet... Yeah. I think your case implies that that might not, you know, there's also something suspect about trying to improve a fundamentally bad or flawed industry. Well, I mean, so she's done a lot to improve things and, you know, we could do, we could do more, like be even better if we eliminated it, but that wasn't feasible at the time. I, I mean, it's not really ethically problematic unless she's actually doing something to stop um, further measures, right? Like she's trying to make the slaughter more humane, um, but she's not actually trying to stop people from buying vegan products, right? Right. Yeah. Um, have you seen Have you seen that film, by the way? The HBO film about it's It's really no. interesting. Now you might be put off because it does show some pretty grisly animal agricultural practices. Um, but her idea is, she, you know, is to really attune yourself with the way that the cows are thinking so you yeah. develop ways of treatment that they are at least not you know that, that they're even that's more natural it's more natural behavior for them yeah and therefore they don't suffer nearly as much so that's kind of the idea there but yeah. i encourage people to watch that um by the way i'm going to do show notes so i'll try to put everything we talk about and maybe some other stuff too yep. in the show notes about this um but he, so here's another example that i wanted to mention and I mentioned this because I've actually bought this product. It's called uh, Fairlife Milk. And it turns out it's actually a Coca-Cola Coca company. Mm -hmm. And so here's what's on their label. Our promise, extraordinary care and comfort for our cows. Yeah. So if you take that at face value, it's like, wow, what, this, is, this is not hurting the cows, right? This is like, if you're a cow, this is where you want to be on these farms because it's, it's not just normal comfort. It's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> And it's Sounds easy to great. take those. It's easy, I think, for consumers to take that seriously. But then I just happened to be poking around, and I found somebody actually sent an undercover 
video crew into one of the, one of their suppliers. And you can see the video online and it, it does have practices that I regard as quite horrible. And so, you know, I think that there's reason to be skeptical generally of these claims, at least humane certified. There's more, you know, there's actually more checking, Yeah. but at the same time, this company, the, the, leader of this company came out with a video and a press release and said, look, we're really sorry. We screwed up. We're going to have a lot better uh, monitoring of the, of our suppliers and a lot more training for employers. So you could look at this one of two ways, right? Right. This proves that you shouldn't take seriously these claims that they're treating their animals well, or you could take it as proof that look, people are increasingly concerned about this. The industry is listening and the industry is slowly changing. So yeah. on net it's, I mean, on net it's less suffering. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if you have any thoughts about that or not. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that it just sort of points up the fact that you can't really take um, companies' statements about their product at face value. And, um, you know, they will lie to make it sound better if there's no one to stop them from lying, right? Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't know. That company might be better than the other companies, I suspect, I suspect so. I mean, at least they're taking it seriously, right? They, they're going to put in some real, I think they're going from one inspection per year to 24. I think that's what I read. That's a pretty significant and they're random, right? So if you're going to get checked twice a month at any given time, that seems like it will motivate the suppliers to improve their practices pretty dramatically, perhaps. That seems right. Um, And, you know, the other um, point that you raised that's interesting about kind of history is yeah, animal welfare didn't used to be taken seriously. It's being taken seriously a lot more now. And, you know, we now have sort of, we have more vegan products than we used to, like a lot more and a lot better. Um, and that is largely because of this animal welfare movement, right? Like the reason why people are making these better products is that there were these uh, animal rights and animal welfare advocates. So uh, humanity is getting better, right? This is, this is one of the many ways in which humanity is getting better, but it's still really, really far away from where it ought to be. Okay. So this next one you might find weird, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it at you anyway. And the argument is that if we had humane, relatively humane treatment of animals, that might actually be better than not doing that. From the animals, from animals' perspective, on net. So the idea is, if we use this area of land for cow grazing, right? There aren't a lot of other prey animals on that land, and we're the ones eating them. So if we kill them in a way that they're not actually suffering or feeling any pain, that might be a lot better than, let's say that we re- we just let that land go and it reverts to antelope and deer, and then we have unless the population gets out of control, we have to reintroduce predators. So then these antelope and deer are being literally ripped limb to lip from limb while they're alive by coyotes, um, wolves, etc. So arguably our humane treatment of animals cutting out the, uh, the natural, a lot of the natural predators is a lot better than just letting it revert to nature where tooth and claw and blood and guts is like, that's normal, right? If you're an animal in the wild, a man, a, a grass eating animal, you're, you're either going to die of, like starvation or the elements, or you're going to be eaten alive, right? That there's, there's, those are your two options. So arguably being killed by humans is less bad than that. Do you, what do you, yeah. what do you think of that line of, do you think well, that's? Uh, yeah, it might, might be less bad than that. I mean, I don't know that that makes it okay. So, uh, I mean, you know, so compare this, 
I guess, analogous argument. Um, so, you know, there's these groups of primitive people, and they have pretty bad lives, and, you know, a lot of them die uh, in bad ways, you know, among primitive tribes. A lot of them kill each other. And so what if someone from our society comes and, you know, like raises those people and then kills them very humanely, right? And then sells their body parts. Well, right? And, and, you know, when we come in there, like we stop them from fighting with each other so that they don't kill each other. And so they get killed much more nicely, like by lethal injection instead of being stabbed by spears and, right? And plus, you know, we feed them so that, and we give them medical care so they're better off overall. And does this make it all okay? So, no. <laughs> Um, well, I think you'd have to add in an argument that there really is a, a difference between treating humans and treating animals. In other words, um, yeah. like it, <clears throat> you couldn't kill a human even if they felt no pain, but you could kill an animal even if if they feel no pain. Yeah. Um, which doesn't strike me as like I think my sense is that's actually true. Yeah. Um, but I think that's at least somewhat plausible. But yeah. Anyway. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's not exactly clear why you can't do the thing where like, you know, you're improving the lives of the people, but you're still explaining them. Uh, it's not exactly clear what the explanation is, you know, something to do with rights, but why do people have rights? Why are there rights at all? Uh, and if we knew the answer to that, then we could answer whether animals have rights also. Um, but, uh, but there's no agreement on why anybody has rights. So it's not that clear whether animals have rights or not. Well, I guess we'll avoid going down that rabbit hole. So um, I guess people can read your book, Ethical Intuitionism, if they want to really know your approach to things, which which still won't solve this particular problem, but might give you some more leads as to where where you're going. Um, But I'll just point out, right, this little hypothetical that I'm going with now, it's kind of irrelevant in today's context because, in fact, (laughs) like... Animals are pretty brutally, like, they're not humanely treated, right? So, like, in our context, it just almost doesn't matter because we're not anywhere <laughs> close to that. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could say this as an argument for buying the um, humane certified products. Um, the other, I mean, other thing that I want to mention is, well, some animal welfare people think that that's not humane enough, right? And that, you know, so they they examine the treatment of the animals on the farm or something, but they don't examine the treatment during transport or, you know, like where the farm got the animals from. They don't necessarily go and check those people out. Um. Well, I mean, ultimately, a lot of it is just simply empirics. I mean, if we know for a fact that an animal is not suffering any pain, that's different from if we know for a fact that they're suffering a moderate or a severe amount of pain. And, uh, you know... I don't, I don't even know if some of these questions are answerable. At least it's, it's at least very difficult, especially when there's so many suppliers, right? And you can't have constant monitoring all the time. Even though it occurred to me, you know, what I think a, a supplier should do is just say, who, want, who says they're, they care about animal welfare and use animal products, why don't they just put up cameras for full-time monitoring and put it on the internet, right? Anybody can look at our facilities, all of our facilities, anytime. To me, if they're serious, let's try that. I think that approach would be the, the most because then you will have people watching, you know, watching this, looking for abuses. And I think yeah. you know, it's kind of the same idea of police wearing camera, uh, body cameras. Yeah. And so you know, there are a couple of explanations for why they're not doing that. In both cases, in the, um, in the meat case and the police case, 
Like one explanation is, oh, it's expensive. We don't want to buy all these cameras. The other explanation is, oh, they don't want people to see what they're doing, right? Yeah, these police cameras sometimes have this magical way of turning themselves off right at the heat of the action. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, all right, I want to keep going with a few more questions, if that's okay. So I think it's fair to say you're a libertarian. You're certainly kind of a free market. Well, you consider yourself an anarcho-capitalist. I am. So, But I also get the sense that you would look favorably on government regulation to improve animal welfare. So how are those things fitting together? Well, um, so, you know, I mean, in principle, I'm an anarchist, like the ideal society would not have a government. Okay, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. And so that doesn't mean that while there is a government, it shouldn't do anything, right? It's like, given that we have one, it should do some stuff, I guess. I guess it's okay. Okay, now, um, you know, most of the things the government is doing, it shouldn't do because they're violations of rights. But I don't think that animal welfare regulations are violations of rights. So if you have regulations that uh, prohibit severe cruelty, that's not a violation of anyone's rights. Nobody has the right to engage in horrible cruelty. Um, you know, so that seems okay. And you might think, oh, but wait, you know, I'm a taxpayer, and I just don't want to pay for the enforcement of that, right? Which is what libertarians say about why a lot of things are wrong. But um, I don't know why that's different from, you know, why can't I say, well, I don't want to pay for, like, police protection for anyone other than myself. And, you know, like, I don't want to pay for the court system for anyone other than myself. And I've never had a court case, so I shouldn't have to pay for that, right? Um, so one argument you make in the political book is that, well, there's no political authority. Meaning, or one way to summarize that is to say, if, you, if it's not moral for you as an individual to do it, then you can't cede that authority to some other agent, be it a government or whoever, whomever else. So I think an implication of that is that you're saying it would actually be morally justifiable for me as a private citizen. Um, let's say if 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 there if I'm in a state where a government is broken down or something, there's no effective government action to forcibly intervene to prevent someone from horribly abusing animals. That seems to be an implication, and therefore, because an individual can do that, um, therefore government can do that. Now you might argue because there is government, the individual shouldn't do that. The, the individual should see that to government, but that's kind of a different point. Is yeah. that basically yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, so, um, if you can shut down the factory farms, you should do it. Uh, now in actual fact, you can't like if in actual fact, if you go to a factory farm and like you try to forcibly shut them down, they'll just call the cops on you. Um, but you know, <laughs> if that was not the case then. Yeah. You know, because, yeah, you know, like, you don't have the right to engage in horrible cruelty. Like, I don't see what the claim is that these people would have. So, okay. I think I, ba- I, think I agree with the basics on this. But just to kind of segue into more sort of libertarian free market stuff, I will point out that a lot of companies now are using their lobbying pressure to get legislative bodies to basically clamp down on plant-based food companies saying, oh, well, you can't call soy milk or whatever milk because yeah. that can only be cows. Or yeah. And there's, a, I can't think of other examples, but there's things, I don't know if that's being yeah. used with the meat label or not, but I know milk 
Yeah. There's something else that I can't think of right now. But anyway. Yeah, I heard that they wanted Beyond Meat to be called something different. Like, the, the meat industry doesn't like that. You can't use the word meat. Beyond um, animal but, flesh. you know, it's like the claim that they're misleading consumers um, is, like, so obviously dishonest. You know, it's called Beyond Meat. So, <laughs> like, it's kind of explicit that it's not meat. Uh, when they say soy milk, it's like... Putting the word soy in there kind of makes it explicit that it's not cow's milk. So I don't think anyone's being misled about that. So what's the point? The point is they, they're just trying to force them to call it something else that doesn't sound as good, right? So that, you know, it's less appealing, slightly less appealing to consumers. Yeah, it just seems like generally a lot of these companies are using their lobbying pressure, political pressure to kind of do whatever they can to impede their competition, and that, to me, um, you know, that's wrong on several levels. And also, there are other legal issues about, is it appropriate for, should it be legal for people to send undercover camera crews into some of these slaughterhouses and so on? And so, I guess we don't have to talk about it much. I think they should be allowed, to, they should not be punished for doing so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, just telling people the truth. Like, there's something very suspicious if... Uh, you're trying to stop people from seeing what you're doing. I mean, you got to kind of wonder about that. I mean, there are reasons why you do that, like, oh, it's private, but that's not the case. It's not like, oh, we're worried about our privacy here. It's like, no, it's, we're worried that if people see what we're doing, then they won't like it and they'll be horrified. Like, that's the only explanation for why the meat companies wouldn't want cameras in there. So you talk, we've talked about this a little bit, and you talk about this in your book, but what is your basic advice for people who are feel this really this social pressure to not go in your direction to just kind of wall this out of their thinking and say and not even pursue it like intellectually so what do you do in response to this social conformity social pressure well i don't know just you know stop, don't be a sheep <laughs> um, <laughs> you know like be independent think for yourself uh you might need to get new friends you know like if uh, if you're feeling a lot of pressure from your friends to eat meat frequently, um, you know, you need better friends. Uh, but might, you understand yeah. how disruptive this could be. I mean, yeah. it's one thing, you know, you live in Boulder, yeah, which is not typical of Colorado. But, you know, somebody, I mean, there are yeah. literally places. I mean, you see politicians when they go to certain places. You go to the local steakhouse and have the local beef. All right, that's just how it's done. And if you don't do that, yeah. you're not going to win. And so in some areas... You know, that's easier said in Boulder, where it's pretty socially acceptable. There's already vegan restaurants and so on, versus ranch town Colorado, and those still exist, um, where that's the that's one of the leading industries, is raising cattle and whatnot. Yeah. So well, I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I think it is worth thinking about that it there's more social pressure for some people than others, like a lot, like orders of magnitude more. Yeah. It's almost the equivalent. It would almost be, like it would almost be easier to say, I'm an atheist in some of these communities than to say I'm a vegan. And I think that's actually literally true. Yeah. Um, well, so, you know, like I don't, I don't really have advice for politicians. I don't know. But uh, fortunately, only a tiny percentage of listeners are politicians, if any. <laughs> you know, like maybe the politicians don't have a good option, right? Because basically, if you're reasonable, if you're a reasonable person and you um, express your views honestly, then you can't get elected. So I don't know what to say about that. Um, but I mean, I do want to say kind of like as a general thing, um, I don't know, you know, you should be like, 
if there's social pressure against being morally decent, that has to stop. And the only way it's going to stop is for the morally decent people to like take a stand. I mean, you can't always give in to the pressure because like that's why the pressure is there because people keep giving in. And there just need to be more people who are happy to say, you know, um, I'm vegan, I'm atheist or whatever. And like then people will have to get used to it. But, right? but they don't have to get used to it if you just hide it because you're afraid of their disapproval or whatever, afraid of appearing weird. Well, I think we've hit some of the main themes of the book. Is there anything else specific to the book or this issue that you think we should work in at this point? Uh, I don't know. Just, uh, you know, go, go buy it on Amazon. It's I mean, a good book. Check it out. Um, I assume you can read at least the table of contents online easily. I assume. Um, and I can, maybe I'll even put that on. If it's not easy, I'll put it on my show notes. You, yeah. That's okay, right? If I just put the t- table of contents online? Yeah. It's, it's detailed. Yeah, there was um, an earlier version of this, which was published in the um, online journal Between the Species, which is open access. Um, the book has a sort of revised, improved version. And just for people's information, this actually got a forward by Peter Singer, who says, in the future, when people ask me why I don't eat meat, I will tell them to read this book, which is a pretty big endorsement because he's considered sort of the founder of the modern animal welfare movement. Yeah. Would you, If there's one other book besides yours, would you still suggest his Animal Liberation, or would there be some other yeah. book more recent than that? Um, I don't know. There are a lot of things written. I mean, so before, so you know, now I w- would recommend my own book, but before uh, I used to have people read articles. So there's an article by Stuart Rachels um, on vegetarianism, which I'd have people read because it has like, you know, just descriptions of the horrible things that I think people don't know about that are being done on the farms. Um, and, you know, yeah, was, there's lots of good stuff. So let's just take as we head to the wrap-up, let's take a minute and talk about the wider scope of your projects. I mentioned I mentioned briefly your other books. So my understanding is you took a year off to research American criminal justice. Is that right? Right, yeah. I was on sabbatical this past year. I won't say off, right? Yes, I yeah. should say sabbatical. And so are you actively working on a book manuscript, or where is that, where is that at? That's right, yeah. So I'm, I'm writing about kind of injustices in the legal system. This will be my next book. Uh, it's probably going to take a while um, because the academic world is really slow. Like, you know, even after I finish it, it's going to take like a year and a half for it to come out. But, oh, really? Um, so maybe two to three years away? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> anyway, there are a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of kind of justice defects in the American justice system. But I will point out here, you also started a blog, and it's called Fake News, N-O-U-S. And you've written about quite a few issues, including vegetarianism and including criminal justice. So people who want to get a taste of what your positions are um, can check that out, and there's a good sort of topical index or what have you. Um, yeah, check, check my website. And my blog. What is? I have a lot of papers. Give, what's posted. your? What's the website other than fake um, news? Is owl that the two thirty two dot net? Okay. O w l two three two. And that's where some of your academic papers are still, right? That's right. Yeah, I have a bunch of papers posted. There's links to some videos and things. Okay. I guess you can follow my me on Twitter, Ari Armstrong. I yeah. often link to humor's blog posts and such. Yeah. Um. All right. I think that we're gonna call it a day. I really appreciate you coming. I yep. Thanks for having me. 
I encourage people to read the book, even if, or especially if you're extremely skeptical up front, which many people will be, um, I guess give your, I would say, give yourself a chance to think it through and at least open yourself up to considering it. And, uh, check out, you know, my podcast, ariarmstrong.com slash podcast for more episodes. And, uh, thanks a lot. And we'll see you on the next episode.